Welcome to the Business of Eye Innovation, MedDevice's monthly podcast that looks at all things ophthalmology. I'm your host, Chris Morrill, founder and president of MedDevice. Joining me today are Professor Eve Hagenbotham, the Vice Dean for Inclusion and Diversity, Senior Fellow, LDI of Health Economics, and Professor of Ophthalmology at the University of Pennsylvania, and Dr. Moore M. Dickman, a cornea specialist with Maastricht University Medical Center, Netherlands. Moore and Eve are joining us today to talk about the current state of affairs in diversity and inclusion in ophthalmology, as well as how aspiring ophthalmologists can make use of the networking resources available today to build the career they want. Thank you both for joining us today. Thank you for having us. No, very happy uh, to meet you to meet you and to have this interesting discussion today. Thank you for the invitation. Great, thank you. So first, sort of a, a softball question um, to ask you both, and we'll start with Eve. Um, how did you end up in ophthalmology? That's a great question. I ended up in ophthalmology uh, because of a role model. Uh, Dr. Matea Smith uh, was one of our faculty members at Harvard Medical School, and she exemplified what was possible in ophthalmology. Of course, at the time, there were very few women in ophthalmology, but this is a discipline that provides us as a as a provider to, to really actually uh, not only uh, provide necessary care to patients related to eye health and, and actually do some amazing things because of the technology and the devices that we have available, but also it's one that you can better balance one's home life as well as professional life. More, what about you? Well, uh, I, first of all, I, I think I need to learn from Eve how to balance my my home life and professional life because I've not been <laughs> very successful about that uh, in ophthalmology so far. Uh, but I think from the same reasons that Eve mentioned, I, I recognize it completely. For me, it was a process of elimination. Basically, um, we go through different rounds uh, and every round that we had, internal medicine, general surgery, psychiatry, family uh, um, uh, physician, uh, all of them, I said, no, I'm not doing this until I did my ophthalmology round and I fell in love because of the opportunity to combine so many things. I like changing. So the ability to combine surgery with a clinic to solve mysteries, to do research, both in the clinic and the lab, to work with people from different ages. Um, I think that spoke to me. And at a certain point, I decided I'll either be an ophthalmologist or I will not do anything else related to medicine. And I'm very happy that I was accepted. And maybe this is an opportunity to discuss um, how uh, diversity comes into play when you are uh, when you are applying for a presidency position in a specialty that's quite competitive. I don't know. I'm I'm curious to hear Eve's story, and I'm happy to share mine if it's not too personal. Well, and and I think that's an interesting point, more because you and we're not going to talk ages and years and things like that, but mm -hmm. you are. Even in yourself, or come into ophthalmology at different generational stages. So, Eve, do you, you want to answer, start there? Yes, and I've seen a significant amount of change over time. So, which makes it uh, very helpful to, to really feel even more uh, secure in, in this discipline and, and, and more. Um, 
satisfied, I think, with the growth that, that there's been. I mean, I did my fellowship in the 80s and uh, actually grew my career. Um, I was a department chair in the United States at University of Maryland in the 90s into the early 2000s and then went up the academic ladder to be a dean and a senior vice president. And I'm now a vice dean of a, you know, one of the top 10 medical schools in the country in the United States. So I see the growth in, for instance, gender representation as being a significant indicator that things are changing, but we have a lot more territory to travel. Or what about you? Well, I can share my experience when I uh, applied for residency. So basically, um, it was for me a period where different parts of my identity were intersectioning. So I, I went to do my residency in a different country for where I came from. So I had a migration background um, for the first time in my life because I, I was born and raised in Israel. So um, I was Jewish in an environment that wasn't Jewish. So there was a, a, a difference in that respect. And also my, uh, my sexual identity was was different. And uh, I actually encountered all the three of those when applying for residency. So in one of the schools where I applied, I got questions um, that more resembled uh, um, the immigration office. Why do I want to come there and work there? Why I cannot stay in the own country where, 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 I, where I studied medicine? Um, and, uh, and, and in another center, um, I was immediately told that uh, there were other candidates who were way better than me. By the way, recently I sat in a committee with the head of the residency program there um, with our Ministry of Health. And I asked him many years later, I said, I'm, I'm really curious, can you tell me any name of anyone who has had a better career from the people that you accepted at the time and <laughs> instead of my application letter? And he laughed because he knew that was not the case. And the place where I'm talking from now in Maastricht in the Netherlands, the head of the department immediately said when I was talking about my partner, he said, you mean your boyfriend, just say that, that's fine. We're very happy with that. And that made me feel very welcome and very wanted. And well, as you see from the picture behind, I've stuck here <laughs> since then. So I think the um, these, these kind of moments are very important of making you feel that you are belonging and that you're wanted, that who you are is accepted, that you can be who you are. Um, um, yeah, that's one of the reasons I think this podcast is important. It's interesting if you look back over the, the past couple decades and, and ophthalmology has gone from being a field that was pretty exclusively male to a field where I think both in the US and Europe, the the ratio now is more women to men entering into um, choosing ophthalmology and going into residency and into practice. Yet, if we look around the rooms that we're in um, at meetings where we like we, we just were in, in the US and in, in Milan, um, let's, let's face it, these, these tape, these, the places at the table are, are pretty older Caucasian male. Um, and, and I, you know, certainly say that from, from my standpoint of being one of the, you know, lone women, um, running a company and, 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 and being a plus size woman and facing different, you know, different challenges as well. Um, what, still needs to be done what what can the three of us do and say to further agitate and and create change so that 
you know, in the, the generations that come after us are not facing this situation where you're, you're the lone, you know, you're the lone um, person of color, you're the lone LGBTQ person in, in the room at the table. Well, I, I think there's so much that can be done. And, and certainly it varies by country in terms of the proportion of women ophthalmologists. So in the United States, it's closer to 35% or so. So we still have a long ways to go. But still, you don't see that same representation at meetings, at podium presentations, on boards. You know, recently, a colleague and I, uh, Dr. Brown Bateman, just uh, reviewed the proportion of women on boards uh, as um, members of boards uh, related to the American Academy of Ophthalmology Business Council and found only about 23 to 24% of women were represented. Uh, Clearly that's not uh, the same as what you would see generally practicing. So we have, and that's where you see a lot of power at the governance level. So I would say that getting greater representation at the board level, clearly uh, emphasizing to your audience who are in um, the business related to ophthalmology, the benefits of diversity at the board level. You know, the fact that more companies are more profitable Uh, that have greater diversity because common sense, you're hearing from a diverse set of perspectives. You're not just listening to one homogeneous group. So it really does go directly to your bottom line uh, when you have a diverse set of perspectives. So uh, serving on boards, uh, critically important. Um, And then professional societies. You know, we're seeing a growing number of women who are taking leadership positions uh, in professional society. So that's a good thing, but we still have a long ways to go. And, uh, and certainly as a woman of color, there are even fewer of us that are represented. And uh, I think out of the 20,000 or so ophthalmologists in the United States, only about 200 of us are, are uh, of African-American descent. And, and certainly that's far too few to be representative of the general population. So you can go through any country and see that there is a discrepancy in the people who are in the profession, who are on the boards versus uh, the representation in the population. More, anything to add there from your perspective in Europe? Yeah, first of all, I think, Going to your question, what you mentioned is in Europe, for example, we have about uh, medical students today is about, I think, between 60 and 70 percent are women. But when you go uh, up the academic ladder, you see less and less women. And I think that raises an issue for for all minorities. Um, that's the leaky pipeline. And we know that there is a leaky pipeline from childhood um, to reach a medical leadership position. So while at least in Europe, the number of women that now start the trajectory to become doctor is, is larger than men, they do not reach the same uh, positions of power at the end. And we need to see um, uh, what is lacking in their ability to be supported throughout this pipeline to be successful. Um, I think what is critical, besides what Eve mentioned, and I completely agree with that, 
I'd like to divide my answer to two. One is what is needed within our profession is two, what is our role as advocates also for uh, patients coming uh, uh, who need our help, who have the same background as us or also um, other um, minority background. So in terms of the medical community, besides what you've mentioned, achieving leadership positions, I think education is very critical because uh, you know you have the formal education but you have also the hidden curriculum um, what people hear from the people um, who, who are who are teaching them I think in, in in that respect there is a lot of work there's a lot of work to be done and um, the second the second part I think in terms of our patients these are like recognizing these social determinants of health so if we're talking about LGBTQ uh, um, patients, they suffer uh, health disparities throughout their cycle uh, of life. If we look at younger patients from teenagers, we know that they are two to three times more likely to, to commit suicide. Um, uh, if we look later, we see that there are much more problems related to, uh, to uh, uh, drug and substance abuse and tobacco abuse, that they have more cardiovascular diseases, they're more subject to, um, to STDs, um, uh, and uh, and when they're elderly, they're more subject to loneliness. And at the same time, we see a lot of implicit bias still with healthcare providers. And, and it's a very vicious cycle because the, the healthcare providers ourselves, we have implicit biases. Uh, and, and that creates also a feeling of um, uh, mistrust within the patients that causes them not to come to, to, to healthcare uh, visits, not to adhere to our recommendations. So I think it's important on one hand to make sure that we are represented throughout this ladder, that we can, uh, 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 that people can hear our voice, that there is good education. And on the other hand, that we advocate for, for our patients because they're usually in a position of dependency within the system. If I might add uh, additional things that we could do at the system level is to examine the processes within our organizations and institutions that actually contribute to the lack of diversity at the highest levels. And so what do I mean by that? So for instance, in the United States, there's a growing trend to advocate for limitations on the terms of department chairs. So in the past, there were chairs and certainly currently who've been in position for 20, 25, 30 years. So having been a chair and having served in that role for 12 years, I can tell you that after about 10 to 12 years, it's time for someone new with a fresh outlook to look at this uh, unit, this department, and uh, determine what may be some new ideas to bring to the table to help the department grow. It's a growth mentality institutionally that needs to be incorporated. And you can apply that to businesses, professional organizations, is to look at the bylaws of your organization. You know, who, how many years can you stay on a board before you're asked to, to leave? Um, Basically, there needs to be greater turnover to allow many more people of diverse backgrounds to be part of the conversation. 
I agree with that very much. I think that's a discussion that's very much alive in the Netherlands right now, and I completely support Eve's notion. The problem is that many times those who are um, drafting these policies are those who are at that point um, in these positions and many times do not have the desire to leave them. Um, but as I said before about the motivation to join ophthalmology, I personally, I think I would get bored after 10 years doing such a position, so, and I would be looking for a new challenge. So <laughs> I think uh, maybe you should look for such profiles. Um, yeah, you wanted to say something? Sorry. No, I was just I was just thinking about all of the other activities that you do in addition to your job um, as in in Maastricht. So I I know you don't get bored um, <laughs> easily. So um, thinking about yeah shortening shortening board terms. Um, you know, within within the society, you know, the societies that we are members members of, how how can we help advocate change? I mean, as you said, they're more um, the people making the decisions may not want to make a change. Not I don't I don't always think it's necessarily because they're they're uncomfortable with the change, but they're it's more that they're comfortable with the status quo. And if the status quo is working, you know, that if it ain't broke, why fix it thing. And and how can um, people who want to see a change happen? How do we gradually uh, advocate and and push to to get things to look a little bit different? Whether it's on the podium or in a boardroom, you know what what are some of the definitive actions that an individual can take to start to make an imprint in their world? Nice, big, lofty question there. <laughs> there are a lot of dimensions to that question. I would, I would start off by highlighting, because I'm a big believer in appreciative inquiry, focusing on the positives, really focusing on the value proposition for in inclusive leadership and excellence. It's a matter of really helping people to understand the business case uh, as well as the lost opportunity for not considering all perspectives. Um, I do believe, for instance, in organizations, when you are an inclusive leader, you have a better opportunity to keep your key employees engaged. And so attrition of staff and providers, employees, all dimensions of the workforce is really costly to business. So building inclusive leadership skills is, is really critically important. And so lastly, I would emphasize the importance of having conversations like this, continuing to talk about it, to publish about it, to emphasize the missed opportunity by not continuing to strive for greater parity related to representation of all dimensions of diversity is critically important. I'd like to add to that, I think on a personal level, the importance of mentorship, that's something very important, I think, in expanding someone, having someone open doors for you, create a network for yourself. 
Um, and I've been fortunate to have a few mentors in my life that really made a difference. If I look really, what are the turning points of my career? These were these mentors who identified um, something in me, wanted to help me um, uh, uh, open doors for me, help me create networks. So I think at a certain stage when you reach in your own career, I think it's something that you can uh, give back and become a mentor to someone else. I think on a personal level, that's where I see most value in. On an institutional level, um, I think um, there's a nice scheme from a surgeon um, called Andrew Ibrahim at the University of Michigan that's nice to look at. And he talks about a, a surgeon's journey um, uh, against racism. Um, and he talks about moving from the fear zone, which means actually denying that racism or bigotry is a problem, into a learning zone, saying that, you know, I want to understand my own privilege uh, and ignoring racism, and I want to learn more about this, into a growth zone where you're speaking out when, when you see racism in action. And many times it's difficult. For many of us, I think we've been in situations where we, we experience either flat-out racism or homophobia uh, or microaggression which is something that I think uh, we often have to face as minorities and to recognize that phenomena and to learn how to respond to that effectively. But reaching a position in life and career, and of course, preferably not when you're very dependent, I can understand that can be challenging. When you raise your voice and you say, hey, wait a second, this isn't cool what you're doing. Why are you doing this? This makes me feel uncomfortable. Do you understand in which position you put me when you say something like this? And also in that, I think mentoring can play a very important role. So helping mentoring in terms of helping you find your own voice and your own footing in, in your career and in, in your professional pathway. Well, eventually you can be very good at what you do, even exceptional, but if you don't have someone opening a door for you, it's very difficult to get in, especially if you belong to a minority group. So I think, yeah, uh, mentoring is really critical in breaking in breaking the, this this glass ceiling. And you know, we were saying, I think basically, I, I can speak about myself. You know, I live in a country in the Netherlands where legally, at least, everything is arranged very nicely. And the Netherlands gays were uh, able to marry as early as 1998 or 2001. Um, there has been laws against discrimination of of uh, of, uh, of uh, sexual minorities uh, since uh, 1994. Um, uh, there is uh, um, there is also the ability to adopt children, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So from a legal perspective, I think things are are, are very are, are arranged very well. So what I want to say, the cultural context that you're working in is very important. If you're working in a country where being gay, for example, is banned by law, then of course there is not much you can do in order to change your own situation besides move somewhere else. Um, and we have to recognize that this climate is is actually also changing in many places in the world. It's not really safe to be, not really safe to be who we are. So the solution is very dependent on the place where you're working. Uh, there, there's no one solution to, to 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 everyone. We also need to recognize, I think, the role of the medical profession itself and perpetuating uh, uh, racism, you know, uh, homophobia was classified as, uh, homosexuality was classified as a psychiatric disorder until not so long ago. I think both of you were <laughs> already witnessing that change. And in the United States, uh, um, which is a beacon of democracy, there was a study um, uh, that was uh, financed by the NIH to look at the natural history of syphilis and in, 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 uh, African-American males when there was already antibiotics available. 
available. So, you know, the, our role in this in this issue is also very important to stand by. I think if we want to create a change, we need to know where we're coming from. What is the history of the medical profession? You know, I come from a family of uh, Holocaust survivors. The two sisters of my grandfather they were uh, subject to medical uh, abuse and experiments by Dr. Mengele, and they were eventually murdered. So you can imagine that my grandfather was not that keen on going to doctors or listening to their advice. So the, the trust that we enjoy also as practitioners is also very much dependent on the social context and the history where we're operating. That, that brings up a, a very interesting point. You, you taught, you know, from a historical perspective, it wasn't that long ago um, when especially gays were were persecuted and and but in in as you say now there are still some countries where that is the case and in the United States we're seeing sort of a backlash and Eve you and I were were talking about this recently how when Obama was president a lot of us who who supported his presidency saw it as a great beacon beacon of hope a beacon of light a moment of change and instead what it what it did was in some ways reveal a dark underbelly in the US that a lot of us knew were there um but didn't want to acknowledge and and so on the surface you know it does seem that progress is being made but but in the reality in the trenches you know are we still do we you know how, there's still a long way to go i think Oh, definitely. I, I really do think in the United States, we're still fighting the Civil War, you know, certainly going back to the mid 1800s, where, you know, construct reconstruction only lasted 12 years. And, you know, there was a sizable proportion of the United States, I'm going to say 30 to 40% that still continues to think that we need to be back in those days uh, where there was um, you know, more, I think, um, hierarchical thinking related to how as populations we should be interacting. So it's an uphill battle. We have a long ways to go. I was more as you were uh, speaking, I was trying to find the name of the psychiatrist who, at least in the United States, uh, was pivotal in changing minds. And that is Dr. John Fryer. Uh, he was at the time at University of Pennsylvania and then subsequently uh, went to Temple. But he was the masked psychiatrist who went to his uh, one of his professional organizations and in a mask. And this is going back maybe 40 years ago, talked about his sexual orientation, but he wore a mask. And he advocated for, you know, greater understanding for the LGBTQ plus community. And he has been celebrated, at least at our institution, as being a primary advocate for LGBTQ plus health and, uh, and justice. And that was 1972. So more, you're absolutely right. It wasn't that long ago. And in some countries, of course, it's still not accepted. Um, but but certainly, I think we can't let that slow us down. I mean, even this one psychiatrist was able to to build enough uh, courage as well as fortitude to make the statements 
And those statements, I think, need to continue to be articulated. Yeah, what what, what Eve is talking about, I think, is is the, the the value of activism. How important it is. How important it is in making change. I think it was after the the Stonewall riots where 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 really more awareness uh, came with regards to, to to gay rights. But until not that long ago, gay people were uh, subject to electroconvulsion therapy because it was considered a, a paraphilia. So, until exactly like Eve is saying, uh, some colleagues were able to put themselves forward and to speak against it. So activism is very important. And and I think the last years have shown how sensitive the, the, the situation is that we cannot sit back and say, well, we've reached something and we're doing good. You see in the United States, limitation on transgender and gender diverse people in the military. You see efforts to reduce the collection of gender diverse data. You see the Supreme Court supporting service providers who are discriminating against same-sex couples. Uh, you see Roe versus Wade being overturned, which was a basic uh, human right, basic woman right, uh, limiting, limiting the, the the constitutional right of, of women to undergo abortion resulting in terrible consequences for for women in the United States uh, so yeah discrimination is still widespread um, uh, uh, even in the Western world where we seemingly enjoy a lot of legal legal privileges uh, but the tide is turning also in Europe you see uh, uh, I don't know if you've watched uh, the new Italian prime minister statements against the LGBT, LGBTQ family uh, saying that it's not appropriate and we should go back to the old model and I think what's common to it both in the United States and in Europe which are again places where the legal landscape is, is quite favorable for minorities compared to the rest of the world is that when there is a crisis, um, minorities are often uh, um, very uh, easy targets to be scapegoated. And that's something that I'm personally, given the history of my family, that's something that I'm worried about because I think there are so many crises ahead of us. We have the climate crisis, um, we have a very uh, big inflation and economic crisis coming, uh, which makes me worried about the minority rights and the upcoming years. So it's important to to keep a <laughs> to keep an eye on it. And and you know, if we're speaking about keeping an eye on it. In, in, in ophthalmology, and, and I read that on the website of the, the American Academy, it referred, to a, it referred to a JAMA paper that I hadn't read before, but basically ophthalmology was ranked second to last in the percentage of LGBTQ matched residents from all specialties in the United States, second only to orthopedics. So I think that shows that we still have a very long way to go because other these people are not matched or they do not feel comfortable coming out and being who they are in their work setting. And it's so critical that um, you know we we do continue these conversations. So Chris, thank you for hosting this this conversation because in ophthalmology, I think we tend to be uh, maybe this might be an overstatement focused on the newest procedure, the next best medication you know, what, what we're gonna be actually paid for, of course, in terms of uh, what we do for our patients. And I don't think we spend as much time thinking about the context of our patient care and, and what our patients are going through related to uh, their daily lives. Um, and so the LGBTQ uh, community is one example of how we have been able to elevate this um, 
this uh, this this population in a way that um, hopefully will have some impact um, in the way we care for patients. So we have to keep talking about it. Um, and uh, Maura, I don't know if you were at the American Academy of Ophthalmology meeting uh, this last uh, meeting in Chicago, but on our name tags, we had our gender preferences listed. So, so that's a that's a big step uh, in a, in the right direction. I agree, and I hope that we'll also be seeing some action on this in the societies where I'm part of, like the European Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons. Um, as you see, I'm I'm wearing this uh, 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 this ribbon. That's not something for today's podcast. This is something that we have at our hospital just to show that our patients who come from a minority background that we are open for them. And um, and I see this name tag that you mentioned, Eve, as as the same statement of kind. It's it, it basically what we're talking about are very simple, basic human values of kindness and respect to each other. And if you cannot stand behind these simple values of kindness and respect to another human being, then you're in the wrong profession as a medical practitioner. So that's why for me, it's difficult to imagine that there should be any resistance to doing this work. And on that note, I think we will finish. Thank you very much, Moore Dickman and Eve Higginbotham. This has been a, a fascinating conversation. I think we've only touched, we've only kind of touched the very surface of it. So I hope it's something that we can continue to talk about and write about and, and advocate for because yeah, as, as Moore says, we, we have work to do. Thank you both very much. Well, thanks for the conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure getting to know you and I enjoyed our talk.